looking at the book of Jonah and the complexity of human nature that is woven throughout these chapters and verses. And we are focusing on the relationship between shame, spirituality and personal transformation. There was a phrase that we picked up on week one of our study of the book of Jonah and that phrase was the Jonah complex, which was first coined by human behaviourist Abraham Maslow. And he noted that the human condition, if given a choice, will evade personal growth. That we do fear our own greatness. That mere thoughts of fulfilling our destiny brings up fears, shames and doubts and challenges, which are easier to ignore rather than to fully embrace God's purpose for our lives. This condition is found throughout Scripture. And it's not just assigned to Jonah, it's also assigned to Noah. It's seen in Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Joseph. We see it in Moses, we see it in Gideon and many, many more throughout the Old Testament. And we see it particularly in the disciples, particularly in Mark's Gospel. And all of these, to some degree, resist the call and the purpose of God in their lives because of doubt, because of shame and because of sin. And Jesus highlights and addresses this human condition in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. Jesus' account of the last servant who presents his one and only last, it was one and only talent that he was given, and he returns it to his master. This servant refused to invest this talent because of fear, because of shame, and because of doubt. So let's do a quick recap over the last two weeks. We know the book of Jonah is an historical account written approximately 800 years before Jesus. Jonah is recorded as a prophet to the nation of Israel in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. Jesus himself refers to Jonah as an historical prophet in Matthew 12, in Matthew 16, and also uh, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 11. In chapter 1, we see Jonah is called by God to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was, at the time, a leading urban centre to the known world until uh, under the control of the Assyrians. The Assyrian people were a people who brought cruelty and lawlessness to a brand new level. Modern-day Nineveh would be somewhere near Mosul in Iraq today, modern Iraq today, the city of Mosul. Jonah's response to God is, I'll do anything you want of me, anything, but don't send me to Nineveh. When Jonah figured out that God wasn't going to change his mind, he ran to the port of Joppa and started asking questions around the seaport. Where is the end of the earth? Because I want to buy a ticket there. He finds himself on a boat to Tarshish, hoping that he will soon be sipping margaritas and learning the tango on the shores of southern Spain. But God pursued him as he runs. There's a storm on the sea and the captain of the boat challenges him to pray to his God. Jonah tells him that he was that's the last thing that he wants to do. And meanwhile the crew are playing the pagan game of Yahtzee and trying to determine who's to blame for the storm. And the dice is rolled and it's Jonah. And at the end of chapter 1, Jonah comes to the blinding conclusion that God is pursuing him through the storm the captain, the dice game, and Jonah owns up to who he is and that he's running from God and, uh, and that he offers, the, he offers the ship's crew 
a salvation solution, and that is the throwing overboard. In chapter 2, Jonah sinks to the bottom of the sea where the roots of the mountains find its origin, and he is snarled and entwined in the seaweed, thinking death is almost certain. We see a man who's come to the very brink of death and to the end of himself, and he's in a state where he cries out to God, and his unlikely, even miraculous salvation comes in the form of a gigantic fish. So salvation is found in the stomach of a whale. So in chapter 2, we see Jonah in a dark, smelly, tight place, and he is actually praising God. The message ends, uh, the message ends, and, and we saw this last week in Jonah chapter 2, verse 10, and it says, And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. That's where we last left Jonah last week. So here is where we pick up our story. After three days and three nights in the guts of a big fish, we see Jonah laying on a sandy beach, coming to terms with what can only be described as miraculous. He, he, he's covered in whale vomit. His skin and hair are probably bleached from the gastric acids of the, web, of the, bell, the, the, the whale's uh, uh, belly juices. His eyes are probably finding it difficult to, to uh, acclimate, to adjust to the bright sunlight. And the word of the Lord comes to him. Chapter one, sorry, chapter three, verses one to two. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. The theme that we will discuss this morning is the mission of God. That God's mission is to rescue people in their sin, to rescue people in their folly, their rebellion, their wickedness, that he wants to forgive them, to redeem them, to transform them and send them out as messages of his grace and mercy so that other people can be forgiven and transformed and changed and turned into messages to send out onto mission so that they can tell other people. And that's exactly why we are here in this great city of Melton. Today, over 2,000 years after Jesus Christ, because God's mission has brought us, Christ Church Melton, you and me, to this very point. So let's have a look at our first observation. And that is the mission of God is carried out by the messengers of God. So it's the mission, the messenger, and the turning. God is not only pursuing Jonah, but he is also pursuing Nineveh. Verse 1 says, Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. In our observation, we must acknowledge that not only does God pursue us, that's you and me, but he also pursues the city of Melton as well. And he has given each one of us a message to proclaim. But we first must go. We have to leave these four walls and go. Verse 3 says, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and he went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city and required a visit required three days. We see that his time in the belly of the whale had caused him to think through his compliance issues. 
that he had before in verse one, in chapter 1. And Jonah is now obeying the word of the Lord, a lot different to his initial response. Now, Nineveh is about 900 kilometres from the coast. So walking around 30 kilometres a day is a month-long journey. It would be like us walking to Sydney. So now Jonah has to walk a month, not fully knowing what God is going to have him say to the city, but he is obeying. So the question is, is Jonah fixed yet? What do you think? Is Jonah fixed yet? He's complying, but is he fixed? He's not fixed, is he? God is still using him though. But God is still using him. Now I hear this often. People often say, I just need to fix this. I need to change this or I need to get my head in the game and then I will do this. Then I will follow God. Then I will think about the things of eternity. Then I will come to church. There's a huge amount of things people will say you know, when you challenge them about getting right with God. And they'll put up every excuse. This is exactly not God's plan for us. This is exactly not God's plan for us. His plan of transformating, his plan of transforming us, his plan of changing us is by going and by doing as we go and participate in the mission of God. It's through that we are transformed. As it was for Jonah, so it will be for us. This leads us to our second observation. Are you waiting to get fixed? Or are you journeying with God, knowing and expecting that in your going, you will be transformed? This reminds me of the story in John chapter 5, which talks about a man who lay sick by the pool of the five porches for 38 years. Can you imagine that? Being disabled and laying by a particular pool for 38 years. The story goes that from time to time, this is from John chapter 5, from time to time, an angel would come and stir the waters of the pool. And the first sick or lame person who got into the waters after the angel stirred them up would be healed. Now Jesus approaches this man who's lying by this pool, waiting obviously for, the, one of the, for an angel to come and stir the waters. And he's been waiting for a while. So Jesus approaches this man, sick for 38 years, and asks him, do you want to be healed? This disabled man replies to Jesus, and his reply is astonishing. He says, listen, it's okay. I know how God moves. He moves in this pool, but the only problem is that after 38 years, I have no one to carry me in and put me in the pool when God shows up. Now, traditions and methods doing the same thing, remaining the same way. I've heard leaders of churches talk like this. They're dying and their church is crippled. But they say, I know how God moves. I'm just waiting here for God to fix things. This is something, sorry, there's something about humanity. We all have this love affair with religious ritual and think if we just stay in the same place and wait, God will fix it. This man in John's story has lost heart. He has lost hope. And he also evades Jesus' question. 
Jesus did not ask him about his swimming ability. He said, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be changed? Do you want to be different? And this man made his excuses. This man evaded the real issue of his life, that he had lost heart, he had lost hope, and he had allowed his understanding of God to be twisted. Jonah chapter 3 verse 4 says, On the first day Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. In the Hebrew language, that sentence, 40 days more, and Nineveh will be overturned, is actually five words in the Hebrew language, just in Hebrew. If you, if you spoke that in Hebrew, which I can't, it would only be five words. But English, it's a little bit more fancier, yeah? So Jonah goes into Nineveh and speaks five words. There's no indication that Jonah says anything else. Now, I don't know what you think, but that's got to be the worst Gospel presentation of all time. Jonah focuses on doom and gloom, sin and rebellion, and leaves out grace and mercy, kindness and forgiveness. The Hebrew word overturned, we say overturned in English, but the Hebrew word is bovak. The word has two meanings to it, and both can be implied in this verse. It means to tumble, to retire, to sack, to disconnect. Or the alternative is just as valid as an interpretation. It means to change, to reform, to transform, to convert. Nineveh is, a, is the largest urban centre of its day. And in, in, in Jonah chapter 1 verse 2, God says, For their wickedness is, is come up before me. Now he could send fire, God could send fire and brimstone from heaven. God could send eclipses. God could send ninja angels with flaming swords. But if we look at the alternative interpretation to the Hebrew word hovak, we can start to get an understanding that it's our going that God transforms. It's in our going that God transforms. As we reach out, as we go to the unlovely, to the unchurched, to the unredeemed, it's in our going that we and them are transformed. Only a sovereign God could do this. And one of the things that come up in, the, in this observation is found in the words of the Apostle Paul. We, we, can, we can sort of make a... Uh, a parallel from into the New Testament here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 27 it says but God chooses the foolish things of the world to put the wise to shame he chooses the weak things of the world to put the powerful to shame God is a master and a skillful worker of using that which is weak and that which is shameful namely us to achieve his eternal purposes so that the recognition and the achievement will not rest on us but it will rest on him and with him note in verse 5 in your orders of service the scriptures there note in verse 5 the people who did the people believe if you look at verse 5 in your order of services in the scripture who did the people believe
Did they? Yeah. Read, read verse 5 for me, Natalie. Oh, sorry. <laughs> the people believed. They believed God. And so who spoke for them though? Who spoke for God? Jonah. Yeah? But the people received the words of Jonah as they received God. They received God's words, but spoken through Jonah. Our third observation is the truthfulness of the word of God does not rest in the messenger but in the message itself. This is so true. This is so powerful. That our faith, that our hope, that our joy should not rest in the messenger, whoever that might be in your life, whoever speaks truth to you. Our faith, our hope should be in the message, and that is the word of God. So right here in verse 5, the Ninevites get this. They understand this. Jonah didn't by any means preach an eloquent eloquent three-point sermon expounding the Greek and the Hebrew like I do. In fact, his whole effort, what is it? It's half-baked, it's half-hearted. But verse 5 says the Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Now, sackcloth was a garment that slaves and those who were in poverty wore. For those people who do not, for, for these people to do this is... It was an outward expression of humility and, and, and grief, at the grieving in their hearts and in their minds and in their souls and in their intellects. And we see more of this in verse 6. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose up from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered, them, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust or sat down in the ashes. Now, as we discussed before, the sackcloth symbolises want and poverty but the ashes or the dust symbolise, uh, it's a symbol of origin. It's a symbol of origin, symbolising that we were create what we were created from, that which was where we will return as well, where we started and where we, were, where we will return. So highlighting that we are created beings and that God is, that, is the creator. And that brings us to... Our fourth observation, but firstly, in the form of a question. What thrones in your life do you need to get off? What thrones in your life do you need to get off? Just like the king of Nineveh, who humbled himself before the word of God. What are the places where you and I sit that give us a sense of identity, purpose, value, significance, hope, joy, fulfilment, accomplishment? If it's not at the foot of the cross... If it's not in Jesus Christ, then it's all vanity and an idol of self. It is a false throne promising false happiness. And the king of Nineveh should convict us to get off our thrones and convict us to get on our knees as we lay down the false thrones of our lives before the king of kings and the lord of lords. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image, he created, so in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. We are created to have our sense of identity, our sense of purpose, value, significance, hope, joy, fulfilment, accomplishment, 
by having our life centred. The nature of sin will, will dictate that we centre our lives on ourselves when we seek to bring ourselves comfort, joy, purpose, value, significance, hope, joy, fulfilment and accomplishment. Every action that is birthed from these motivations is sin. Adam Sinet calls this a self-salvation project. He says a self-salvation project is birthed on bringing ourselves to a better place on our own terms, in our own time, by our own means. Now the king of Nineveh recognised that and he got off his throne in sackcloth and in dust or ashes in full humility, in full repentance. So what are the thrones this morning that you and I need to get off, that we need to get on our knees before God? Verse 7 and 8, Then he issued a proclamation to Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God and let them and let them give up their evil ways and their violence. The king's decree is a, a dire situation. It's not intended to be hyperbole because they got the animals involved too. More to the fact, this is now serious. Uh, it's, it, it, it's, it's, more, it, it's how seriously they treated the word of God. How seriously they respected the word of God and his warning. There are very few times recorded in the Bible of a fast that included no food and no water. The only one I can think of is Moses on Mount Sinai. I think he was the only one. Yeah. This is a, a, a very urgent matter. So much so that they include everyone in the city to fast, man, woman, child, and the beasts as well. And the beasts, and the, 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 the farm animals, and the horses, and all of that. So the question is, how many days did they have, according to Jonah's, the word Jonah brought? How many, how many days did they have? 40 days, yeah? How long did they wait? Let's have a look at verse 6. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. When we, we could say that God's word had an immediate effect, didn't it? It had an immediate effect. The scripture tells us that they cried out urgently, immediately. So our fifth observation is in the form of a question also that we will all need to answer individually and answer as a church. And that is, do we have a sense of urgency? Psalm 39 verse 5 says, You have made my days a mere hand's breadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Each man's life is but a breath. First Peter chapter 1 verses 23 to 25. And you can also find this in Isaiah 46 to 8. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Now as I read the scriptures and, the, and go about my life, 
I see that all of life is but a vapour. We are here today and we're gone tomorrow. Eternity, my friends, is at stake. So the question is, do you have a sense of urgency? I ask this question because the mission of God is taking place now. We are the messengers of God now. Our city needs transforming now. The Ninevites had 40 days, and how long would it take for us if we were Jonah? The real question is, how long is it taking us? There are souls in this city that will not be around in 40 days. And so we do not hold our lives in our hands. We know how quickly, at least I'm starting to, how quickly does a decade pass now? How quickly do our kids grow? Have our kids grown up? Now it's our grandkids. Is it one Alex, I, I was there when he was born. Now he's taller than me. <laughs> How, you're, you're, is your grandkid taller than you? Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? How quickly do anniversaries come around now? Our life is a vapour. It's time to call out urgently to God. I don't want to cause any melodramatics or overly emotionally or harshly deal with this, but the reality is Jesus is alive, he's ruling and reigning, heaven is real, hell is real, eternity is real, and when it all said and done, our lives are finite, they're vapour. So we need to have a sense of urgency. The king of Nineveh is, in our text, should convict us and challenge us about this urgency. Just showing us, just showing up every week for church services is not what the Christian life is all about. There is something far more significant and greater for you and I to be participating in, and that is the mission of God through Jesus Christ, that we should be telling people that there is a heaven to gain and there is a hell to avoid, and lifting up the name of Jesus in our lives. Jude chapter 1, verses 21 to 23 says, Keeping yourselves in God's love, as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you into eternal life, being merciful to those who doubt, snatching others from the fire and saving them. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Let's revisit our text and pick it up in verse 9. It says, Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we may or so that we will not perish. The king of Nineveh rightly said that. We do not control God. That's what he's saying. We do not control God. He is sovereign and just and we can't control the outcome. But we can repent. We can relent. We can repent. And in verse 10 it says, when God saw what they had what they did and how they had turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. So grace and mercy. We have a lot to learn here from the Ninevites and how they repented. So let's look at our sixth and final observation. The question can be asked. Are chapters 1 and chapters 2 of Jonah a waste? It seems like the guts of the book is found right here in chapter 3, doesn't it? 
If any of us were to write the book, we would have surely started at chapter 3 and we possibly would have added verse 11. This is how I would have finished chapter 3. And Neil Taylor walked into the city of Nineveh, oh sorry, walked out of the city of Nineveh into the setting sun, just, just having just uh, orchestrated the largest revival of, in the history of the world, full stop. <laughs> so we just present chapter 3 and add chapter 11, yeah? As we think about it, that's what just happened, really. An extremely reluctant and regretful prophet by the name of Jonah who is inadequate and half-hearted and half-baked, spoke five meagre words and the Spirit of God got hold of those five words and floored an entire city and brought everyone to their knees in conviction and repentance. If you and I were writing that, we would have added that extra verse saying, the great and mighty prophet, and concluded the story, But that's not there. That is not there. In fact, the book has four chapters. Why? Because God is still pursuing Jonah. God is still pursuing Jonah. The greatest revival in the history of the world, and God is now still pursuing Jonah. This is the God that we serve this morning. This is so true for our lives as well, and who we are and how we live and how we wrestle with God in our lives and how God wants to change us as we participate in the mission of God. The mission of God is carried out by the messengers of God. Turn to the person either side of you and say, hey, he's talking about you. (laughs) It is the mission of God that transforms us, not by punching in a time card at the church door on Sunday mornings, not by traditions, not by methods. The truthfulness of the Word of God does not rest in the messenger, but it rests in the message itself. Our faith and our hope should not be on our faith and our hope should be in the Word of God and not in some long ago vicar or in our own sufficiency. So here's where the rubber meets the road this morning. The people of God are called afresh to the mission of God in every generation. Not relying on the professionals, not relying on the experts, not relying on the prophets or those who have gone before us. God is calling on us, you and me, with all our shortcomings, with all our inadequacies, with all our fears, with all our failures. God is calling on us. He's calling us to mission. This is my prayer and my hope for our church, that we would rise to the mission of God and tell the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that Jesus died in our place so that we could come into relationship with God. It's not about what ritual we do or observe. The fact is everyone needs to turn from their sins and put their faith in Christ. Christ alone. Amen. Let me please pray with me. Father, I pray that you would stir us up. God, spiritually stir us up. God, break our hearts and let us see our own ungodliness. God, forgive us of our sins. God, forgive us as a church for the things that we failed to do in you. 
God, stir us as individuals. God, stir me as a priest who would then stir your people. Give us a divine passion. God, empower us to let go of anything that keeps us from doing anything you want us to do. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.